Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast. It's New York Sports Talk along Suffering Fam. Your host, Mike Phillips. Got a, another good show for you this week. We released an episode on Tuesday. Did our Super Bowl betting preview with Kevin Walsh from Sports Grid, and definitely a fun conversation. If you want to check out that episode? Be sure to subscribe to the Just End the Suffering podcast. You can do that on all your favorite podcast platforms: Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering your favorite podcast platform. You find all episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and star rating as well. Help make the podcast even better going forward. You can follow the YouTube page as well, Mike Phillips on YouTube, for video versions of the podcast. Coming up today, got a special doubleheader. I mentioned previously on that Super Bowl betting podcast, we're going to do some college hoops with Troy Moriello of the CD Red Podcast. That's coming up as well. But we got to get started here with some analysis of the bombshell lawsuit. Brian Flores filed against the National Football League and three teams claiming racism in their hiring practice. And we're joined by our legal correspondent, Phil Frietta, right after this. All right, we are back here on the podcast in the legal corner. It's someplace I did not think we'd be yet for a couple of weeks. I know the lockout's still going on, but... We had a absolute bomb drop on us in the world of the NFL. Join me today, our legal correspondent Phil Frey is here. Phil, how are you? I'm I'm doing well, Mike. Uh, that was a bomb is the right word. Uh, I was actually participating in a uh, mediation today, which is essentially a uh, group of lawyers meet and try and resolve a case. And uh, this hit in the middle of the mediation, and the obviously just took over all the lawyers giving their opinions and. The mediator, given his opinion, it was uh, it was crazy, crazy news. Absolutely. And in case you've been living under a rock for the past uh, 48 hours or so, we had breaking news Tuesday afternoon in the NFL, most in the form of Brian Flores, who, former coach of the Dolphins, has been interviewing a lot of places in this cycle. I believe he actually interviewed with the New Orleans Saints shortly before this lawsuit came out. He is suing the National Football League in a class action lawsuit arguing that the systemic racist policies of the league are preventing the proper advancement of black coaches and black general managers and far off associates. So initial reaction, obviously you said you were in a room with a bunch of lawyers, like how crazy was the fraud process there about this suit coming out? Absolute bombshell, absolute bombshell. And I can tell you, Mike, uh, for, for, the audience, I, I am a class action lawyer. That That is what I do. I file class action lawsuits. So uh, uh, this is one of the segments that you had me on that I'm probably actually more qualified to talk about than the others. Uh, and, and the lawyers I'm with are class action lawyers too. Just an absolute bombshell, uh, unbelievable lawsuit from a legal perspective, from a sports perspective, crazy as well. We'll get into all of it. But uh, man, that is a, it's a, just fun, fun read of a complaint. Oh, for sure. The complaint, I did read all 58 pages of it. I will link to it in the show notes if you want to take a look at it yourself. I'm going to use the screen share on the YouTube version here. So 
Phil and I are going to show you what's going on. Some of the exhibits in the complaint, they're pretty wild. And before we go any further here, just, just as a layman, I'm not a versed in the laws you are. Can you explain the basic process of the class action lawsuit, what the accomplishing, the goal is trying to be accomplished this year? Sure. So, so a class action lawsuit is, uh, it, it's, it's a lawsuit, except that it's brought by one person or a small group of people on behalf of himself and a larger group of similarly situated people. So in this case, Brian Flores is suing on behalf of himself, but he's also suing on behalf of all the other African-Americans who uh, were wrongfully denied head coaching positions and other positions uh, uh, as alleged in the lawsuit. Yeah, for sure. I want to also, before we go further into the weeds on the lawsuit <laughs> here, I want to share the screen here. I have the tweet statement from Brian Flores up here. So I'm going to put this in the video right now. And this is from multiple atlases from Bleacher Report. The statement Brian Flores said, guys give me with a special talent to coach the game of football. But the need for change is bigger than my personal goals. In making a decision to file the class action complaint today, I understand that I may be risking coaching the game that I love and that has done so much for my family and me. My sincere hope is that by standing up against systemic racism in the NFL, others will join to ensure that positive change is made for generations to come. And I think in terms of that, Phil, I mean, he's right. He could very well be blackballed for, for doing this lawsuit and never work in the league again. But I fully respect Ryan Flores doing so. What he is standing for is much more important than his salary or his family could be like if he gets another head coaching job. So, so I alluded to the sports implications, and that's one of the things I meant. Uh, Brian Flores is likely never going to coach in the NFL again now that he did this. Uh, I think he understands that from that statement, um, which, by the way, is would be illegal to blackmail him from the league, uh, as we learned from the Colin Kaepernick situation. But let's let's face let's face reality. That's probably what's going to happen. So, uh, so I think that Flores understands that, and you're right. What he did is, uh, it's a selfless act. Um, we, we oftentimes, uh, as lawyers, uh, a lot of times I, I deal with clients who say, you know, I don't really want to put my name on that kind of a lawsuit uh, because, and there are things that are obviously far less of a bombshell than this. So, so that was a big. Uh, Flores really stepped up to do this. Yeah, he really did. And I also want to pull up real quick the NFL response to this lawsuit. And I've seen a couple of tweets on it. I'm going to pull up one that I <coughs> I saw from, I believe it was, I've was retweeted. This is from Peter King. And then he quote tweet, subtweeted the Field Yates tweet. And this is what the league had to say in response to the lawsuit. And I'm, I'm not going to comment on simply the wording of it. I'm going to ask you your legal opinion on how the league handled their response here. This is from the NFL. The NFL and our clubs are deeply committed to ensuring equitable employment practices and continue to make progress in providing equitable opportunities throughout our organizations. Diversity is core to everything we do. And there are a few issues on which our clubs and our internal leadership teams spend more time. We'll defend against these claims, which are without merit. I do feel like that's a very, very strongly worded response to the complaints from Brian Flores. Yeah, that that's uh, I disagree with you a little bit there. That's kind of just par for the cards. Of course, when you sue these big companies, they have PR people who come out with these uh, fluffy statements about how you know we we really are committed, but your lawsuit has no merit. Uh, that that's that's what that reads like to me. I, as far from a legal perspective, it's not going to matter whatsoever. Yeah, basically, it's just your standard, okay, here's our form letter response to this lawsuit, and we better just going to try here say, hey, this means nothing to us. Like, we disagree entirely with what the premise is. Yeah, Mike, I could tell you that I filed uh, well over 
probably three, four, maybe even 500 lawsuits in my career at this point. Uh, you know how many the defendant said had merit? Zero. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so that, that's just par for the course. It is par for the course. And I want to dive more into this complaint here. <laughs> and there are a lot of bombshells in here. I'm going to start off with the thing that starts it off here. I mean, obviously the top of the lawsuit here, there's a quote here from the from the lawsuit referencing text messages. It says, quote, sorry, I fucked this up. I double check and misread the text. I think they're named Brian Dayball. I'm sorry about that, BB. This is Bill Belichick informing plaintiff Brian Flores three days before the interview with the New York Giants that Brian Dayball had already been selected for the job. And you were also a Giant fan. You were following this process here of the Brian Flores, Brian Dayball discussion here. Who was to get hired? We ended up with Dayball getting introduced earlier this week. So now we see this. So interesting that like, this is sort of our main entry into the lawsuit. Yeah, uh, it's a very interesting way to start a complaint. Uh, so, so before I start commenting more on the complaint itself, I do want to put something out there kind of as a disclaimer. Uh, I have litigated against the plaintiff's lawyers in this case. Uh, I know them. Um, and so I, I kind of want to reserve my punches a little bit. I don't want to criticize them. I think they're excellent lawyers and they do a great job with their clients. Yes. Uh, this this is a strange way to start a complaint. Uh, typically, you would not put something like this. This is more something that you see in an academic article. But, uh, but it's powerful to read it uh, because that's that's bad to uh, to, to run a sham interview like, like they're alleging is, is that is bad. That's good evidence for the plaintiff. Uh, the Giants look absolutely horrible here, if that's if that's true. And it begs the question, uh, you mentioned that I'm a Giants fan, so I don't want to go too far into the football aspect of it. But why are the Giants still involving Bill Belichick in their hiring decisions? I thought <laughs> I thought we moved away from involving Bill Belichick, but obviously not. They're obviously making sure that he knows what they're doing before they do it. Oh, they absolutely are. I do think it was very interesting to see this. I'm going to scroll down. You're going to share the screen again. We did get actual, in the complaint, we had a lot of good visual aids in the complaint. We have the actual screenshots of what reports to be text messages between Bill Belichick and Brian Flores, and I ended up here now. And then you see this thread here. Or from Bill Belichick to Brian Flores. Sounds like you have landed. Congrats, Flores. You hear something I didn't hear. Giants, bunch of question marks, exclamation points. I interviewed on Thursday. I think I have a good shot at it. Bill Belichick says, got it. You're from Buffalo and NYG. You are their guy. Hope it works out if you want it to. Flores, that's definitely what I want. I hope you're right, Coach. Thank you. Then he says a little later, Coach, you're talking to Brian, Day Brian Flores or Brian Dayball? Just making sure. Then they get the reading from the top there that we mentioned before. So, Having these text messages in here is definitely a, another sort of interesting article I did not think we'd see in a complaint. It's the best evidence that that's in this entire complaint. Uh, the, the, again, the fact that Bill Belichick knew that this was a sham interview is looks really bad for the NFL and particularly for the New York Giants. But why, why are they telling Bill Belichick that they're going to have a sham interview with Brian Flores? That just uh, doesn't doesn't look good. Uh, you know, well, obviously the investigation will determine whether or not these are truthful text messages, if they're fabricated or anything like that. But uh, but they look they look bad. 
for the for the Giants and the league. Yeah, I also want to break a point that somebody asked me offline earlier. I'm not going to name names here, but they asked in terms of like the Giants process here. I know the Rudy rule basically says now and that's sort of one of the controversial points of this lawsuit is like that the Rudy rule is not being tr- treated properly to actually promote the growth, career growth of black coaches in the league. And it's just that the current Rudy rule is you're supposed to interview two candidates outside your organization who are minorities to be a head coach. And the Giants interviewed Patrick Graham, who was an internal candidate. They interviewed Leslie Frazier. Uh, Flores was the third minority candidate they interviewed, and he was technically after that. So you see the lead all trying to argue that the Giants did satisfy the rule, even though it does look bad that you have these text messages. Yeah, look, the, the league will certainly argue that. And the problem that the league has here, and Mike, you know this, People who have criticized the Rooney rule over the year have criticized it for this exact reason. They've argued that the end result is that minority head coaching candidates get sham interviews, but nobody's ever been able to prove it. And now Brian Flores has a text message that seems to prove it, that he got a sham interview by the New York Giants. Uh, So so it looks bad for the league that it it appears that this Rooney rule is nothing more than, uh, you know, just... um, really inconvenience pull, try to just yeah pull pull wool over your eyes yeah make you think that we're doing something but but we're not we're just we're just running some sham interview of a guy and uh moving on yeah there's some other allegations in here that like at this point are a lot of like he said he said where we're gonna get some of those and obviously there are gonna be questions where we can get these owners or executives into like court in this case that's not i'm gonna forget to touch on you later on here but i think the giant one is the most interesting one because this is the only one in here where they actually have like direct proof that something fishy went on here. So I think that's probably the most, as you said, it's the most compelling point in their case thus far. Absolutely. I, I, it's, what, it's, it's what jumped out to me when I read the complaint. I was like, oh my God. Like typically in an in a employment type case, let, let's divorce this from the NFL, right? Let's just talk about an employment lawsuit. If I was applying for a job at a company and I didn't get the job, and I determined that I didn't get the job for whatever reason. I, I'm, I'm whatever race, religion, gender, et cetera. How often do you have actual proof that you were given a sham interview, that they picked somebody before you even got there? The answer is never. You would never know. And, that, and, and I'm sure that happens in companies every day. I'm sure that there's companies who invite five guys to interview for the same job. They love guy number one. They're sure they're going to hire him. They just interview the other four guys just to be polite. But the other four guys would never know. In this case, somebody knows because Bill Belichick told him. It's it's a really, really mind-blowing allegation that's supported by evidence, it seems like. And uh, it's, it's, to my, it's to me the, the best piece of evidence. It's the whole bread and butter of this lawsuit. Yeah, I want to touch on a little another piece of the lawsuit before we go into specifics about some of the other teams listed here. I'm going to go back to the top of the lawsuit again on the on the YouTube versions. Again, you can check it out on my YouTube channel, like Phillips on YouTube, for more on this. So the way this is said here is that I'm reading the actual court filing. United States District Court, Southern District of New York. Brian Flores is a class representative on behalf of himself and all those similarly situated as the plaintiff. V, the National Football League, New York Football Giants, Inc., Miami Dolphins, LTD, Denver Broncos, and John Doe teams 1 through 29. So those three teams, the Giants, the Broncos, and the Dolphins are named. 
John Doe teams to one through twenty nine. You read further in the piece are the rest of the teams in the league who the lawsuit claims like are following like policies that are systemically racist in their hiring practices. And we'll dive more into that. I think I think I read on Twitter. I want to get your take on this. I think the fact that all these teams are listed here is not directly like impacting Flores by potential class action like defendants here. I think is opens the process of discovery to the defense team to the plaintiff team, and I think it's something the NFL will want to avoid at all costs. Yeah, so 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 the reason that they do that is uh, Flores himself is able to make allegations against the Giants, the Dolphins, and the Broncos. He's not able to make allegations against the other 29 teams, but he has reason to believe that the other 29 teams are involved in this conspiracy, as he alleges it. So you call him those, you do discovery, and you see if in the discovery evidence comes out that yeah, the the Jets, for instance, they were in on it. They 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 knew what was going on and they, they were part of the gentleman's club, et cetera. So that, that's what the does are about. Yeah, and I think the problem here, the NFL think is definitely gonna want to avoid here. This is why I think this trial could be such a like bombshell for the league, even beyond the implications of what Flores could gain if he wins the lawsuit. And I'm I'm not gonna even speculate on what this lawsuit could look like. It's just the fact that the NFL could have stuff dug up in discovery and end up on public record. They want no part of it. And we speculated this back when we had the John Gruden email situation and who knows other correspondences could like implicate the league on things that look very, very poor oh, publicly. Absolutely. Absolutely. The NFL is going to be bringing as many motions as they can to seal the case, keep it confidential. But I could tell you as somebody who uh, I practice in the Southern district of New York, most of the time, the judges on that court do not like confidentiality provisions. They are not in favor of it. They, they believe that the litigation process should be open to the taxpayers because ultimately the taxpayers are what support the courts. And uh, that, that's going to be a tough, tough motion for the NFL. Yeah, I want to get to a couple of the other things there. And, and yep. let, me, let me add one more thing here, Mike. Sure. Uh, the plaintiff's lawyers in this case, the Wigdor firm, yeah. they use media to their advantage. Uh, they are not a law firm who is shy about going to the press. So uh, I would expect the Wigdor firm to be going to the press, giving interviews uh, within within the bounds of the rules, of course. But uh, but if there's groundbreaking information, they'll they'll let the press know about it. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, like we are recording on Tuesday night, the next morning here, Wednesday, they'll be out. This is going to happen before the podcast is out here, but. We, they, Brian Flores and his legal team are doing an exclusive interview with CBS News this morning at 7 a.m. So they're going to be on there starting their rounds about the case. Not surprised. That's, uh, that's, that's the law firm's play. That's their MO. Yeah. I also want to add here that the use of visual aids throughout this, uh, this briefing are very, this complaint are very interesting. And I think these are designed for potential jurors. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to ask your opinion as a lawyer here. Like, we have graphics in here, for example, where in the complaint we're showing the num like these are the current head coaches or f- like like lead football people right now, and you can see like they make it very clear like there is one black man in that group, and there are two only two other minorities in that group. You go down, oh. to, you go down to the GM section here. There are six black men in the group, and then you go to the owner section, which is the last one, zero. So the the visuals are there. You're right. Part of the, they're partially there for the, the jury uh, who may one day get a copy of the complaint. Uh, but but they're more so there for even just the judge. 
because you know judges are human beings uh and visuals help that, that I, I do the same thing in my legal work i, I put visuals in in legal filings all the time, uh, whether it be photographs or charts or things like that, they help you read and, and they, and they, a picture's worth a thousand words. That's the saying, right? And, uh, and it's true. It's definitely true. It absolutely is true. I mean, for, this is something that they talk about in the media for a while. It's like in a league where 70% of the players are black and a lot, a lot of money and know the complaint basically compares the league to basically a plantation style where the owners are profiting off of the black players. I know I'm not going to get into all that stuff specifically because it's not my place to get into how they see what's going on there. Cause obviously I'm not living in their in a, a black person's skin uh, or their experiences. I'm going to say to this is like, you see the picture, you see that there's only one black man in the lineup of head coaches. And that's a problem when you see, you have a league that's that composed of African-American players. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, the the p- pictures speak a thousand words. That's the bottom line there. Uh, you, you look at that picture and it's, you, you got to at least ask yourself why, why, why is that? Uh, it's, it's, it's a hard one and something that they left out uh, that, that, that I would have included uh, and maybe it's an allegation in the complaint and I missed it. But my understanding is that as when you talk about assistant coaches, I actually think that the most of us, the assistant coaches are minorities. Uh, so why is it that they can only be assistant coaches and they're not head coaches? It's certainly makes you at least think about it. Yeah, it certainly does. Now there is a point in the article that referenced like how many blacks are in positions such as offensive coordinator, quarterback coach, defensive coordinator. The numbers are not very high there either. Uh, no, no. Uh, I, I think it's, I think you go down to the lower level assistant coaches. Yeah. Uh, then, then you start talking about more minority coaches. That's my understanding. That's the that's the way I phrase, it's, they phrase it in the complaint. I want to touch on a couple of the other teams referenced here. I want to go to Flores' former team, the Miami Dolphins, and they're these again. These are allegations from Flores. We don't have any like corresponding evidence, like the text messages we had with Bill Belichick. And this is from the lawsuit. The Dolphins owner Stephen Ross was unhappy with his performance, not because it was unperforming. To the contrary, Mr. Ross wanted the, Mr. Flores to "quote unquote" tank the season to put the team in position to secure the first pick in the draft. It's 2019 to talk about. Indeed, during the 2019 season, Mr. Ross told Mr. Flores they'd pay him $100,000 for each game lost that year. Then, when the Dolphins started winning games, doing a part, small part of Mr. Flores' coaching, Mr. Flores told the team's general manager Chris Greer that Steve "quote unquote" was mad "quote unquote." Mr. Flores' success in winning games that year was compromised was "quote unquote" compromising draft position. Close quotes. And to me, I know again, this is an allegation. We don't really have any proof of this actually happening apart from Flores' word on it. This is something in an age where there is legalized gambling and game-fixing laws. This seems like something that the FBI might be very interested in. So, yes, from, from a legal perspective as far as this lawsuit, this isn't all that important. But this is in there for a reason. This is in there because, like you said, this is something that's going to get the FBI's attention, and this is something that the NFL is going to run and hide from. Because, Mike, uh, when, I, when I was in law school, I took a, a course uh, on, it was called Sports in the Law, and it was actually taught by somebody who was a former uh, high-up high person in the NFL's general counsel office. And he explained to, in, the, in the course that there is nothing more important to professional sports leagues than 
protecting what's called the integrity of the game and making sure that fans know that every game is fair, the teams are trying to win, and it's not professional wrestling. It's not scripted. But if you have a situation where your owner is paying you extra money to lose so that you can get a better draft pick, that is a debacle. It's an absolute debacle. Like you said, especially with gambling, gamblers being involved, who knows if that's going on behind the scenes. Can't have that. You cannot have that. I think the, that's a big deal for the league. Uh, it, it's, it's, and, and it certainly uh, emboldens, it, it's a big deal for label, labor negotiations too, because that's always a labor issue is, are you tanking on purpose to get it? it it's, that's a disaster. That, that allegation is a disaster. Yeah. And like, I mean, obviously, Fours did not accept that team when we talked about it at the time. We started talking about, oh, you know, they're tanking. They're trying to everybody of, of value. They're trying to get number one pick. And now we have an allegation saying, hey, like, he was not only tanking to get the number one pick. He was offering his head coach $100,000 to intentionally lose football games. That's a big, big deal. It's, it's the biggest deal you could have. If it's true, Stephen Ross needs to be removed as the owner and banned from the NFL for life, if that's true. Yeah, it's true. And now let's get to the Bronco one, which is not the same scale as the other two, but it's more of an, it's another one of these sham interviews. I'm going to go down to section 160 of the complaint here. This is prior sham interview with the Denver Broncos. Incredibly, because they put this after the Giants section. This was not Mr. Flores' first sham interview that was held only in an effort to comply with the Rooney rule. Indeed, in 2019, Mr. Flores scheduled an interview with the Denver Broncos. Are the Broncos then general manager, John Elway, president and chief executive officer, Mr. Ellis, and others, show up an hour late to the interview. They look completely disheveled. It was obvious they had been drinking heavily the night before. A script from the substance of the interview, Mr. Flores interviewed only because of the Rooney rule that the Broncos never had any intention to consider him as a legitimate candidate for the job. Shortly thereafter, Vic Fangio, a white man, was hired to be the head coach of the Broncos. So I think this one, I don't know if you can speak to this as a lawyer. It sounds like, again, allegations, but this is more of a we're embarrassing the NFL here by including this in the lawsuit. Uh, yeah, it's a little of both. It's a, it's a little of both. There, there's some, we're trying to embarrass the NFL, but you know what? It's an allegation. And uh, there, there's, there are people who can verify whether or not that's true. And Brian Flores is one of those people. So if, if that's what he says happened, uh, he gets, he gets, there's a presumption of truth unless, uh, unless it can be proven otherwise. Uh, so, so, so Brian Flores says that happened. Is that enough to win his lawsuit? No, but it, it's evidence uh, the the testimony of Brian Flores is evidence in a legal proceeding. It is definitely evidence in a legal proceeding. And I think the other thing, I'm not going to go through the visuals because there's way too many to slides to go through, but they do a good job of breaking down the league's troubled history with race in the past, going all the way back to the segregation of the league, George Preston Marshall of, of the Washington franchise, basically making efforts to ban blacks <laughs> from the league. We had the, the perils of the Rooney rule in the past and how a lot of, they go through a lot of qualified cases who had trouble getting interviews like Eric Bieniemy, Terrell Austin, all their cases are listed in there. And they definitely go back to John Gruden again. They cite the emails saying, you know, the league knew that John Gruden was a racist, had, like all these terrible qualities, yet he was a preferred hire on the circuit for about a decade before he came back to the Raiders. So it's sort of furthering the, I think, good job here by the lawyers, including this in there, in my opinion. Absolutely. Uh, it provides color. It, pro it provides color. And, and when you file a lawsuit like this, you know it's going to be in the news. Uh, so, so you need to include stuff like that. 
yeah, you would include stuff like that. And obviously, my next question here is sort of like, what is the goal here from Flores? Obviously, you read the thing. So, like, what recourse is he seeking through this lawsuit? Well, he's seeking money damages. Uh, that, that's 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 what he, the lawsuit claims he's seeking. Uh, but I think what he's really seeking here is to put the league on notice and put the teams on notice that we're not, we as minority coaching candidates are not going to take this anymore. Uh, we, we feel like we're not being treated fairly and we want, we want a fair shake and we want some jobs. That, that, that's what I read it as. Uh, so so in, from a legal proceeding, yeah, if he wins the lawsuit, he gets money. But I, I don't think he just wants money. I think he wants more. Yeah, I'm trying to find. There's a place listed in the arc in the in the complaint that it says specifically what he was seeking in the. So it should be called the prayer for relief. It's usually at the end of the complaint. Yeah, I got to scroll down. That was just a lot of articles in the complaint. I'm gonna keep looking into that. I also will say here. Uh, it's it's. The, I'm gonna see if I can pull it up on my screen here. But it's it's normally right before the signature blocks, all the way at the end. I'm going to keep going down here. It might be after the pictures here. While we're doing that, I also want to mention here, I do think in terms of what's going on here, I'm sure this hiring cycle definitely expedited the process of the lawsuit for Ryan Flores because this is a cycle right now where we have nine head coaching openings. As of recording right now, five have been filled and five have been filled by Caucasian candidates. And the ones that are still open right now, the Vikings is down to either Giants as a corner Patrick Graham, who is black, and Jim Harwell with the tea leaf scenes indicating they're leaning towards Harwell taking prime away from Michigan. We have the Houston Texans apparently want to give Josh McCown the head coaching job. You know, he's never coached in his life. He just came off the field as an NFL quarterback. The Jaguars are the only one linked to a black candidate really right now because they were interviewing Byron Leftwich, although that's sort of been in limbo for a while, looking at more candidates. The Dolphins talking to Mike McDaniel, the 49er offensive coordinator of the team just fired Flores. And the Saints, I was still in the middle of their search for Trump Payton, though there's been some tea leaves that Dennis Allen may end up getting that job at the end. But you look at that cycle, especially if Josh McCann is the Texans' job, that's another one that the league would be horrified if that's going on in the midst of this lawsuit. Yes, and yes, uh, yes, I agree with that. But but the problem that you end up having here, Mike, is that, and this is where I think the, the lawsuit is ultimately going to struggle on a class-wide basis. These head coaching candidates are different in, in their qualities and in, in their qualifications. So for instance, there's an allegation in this lawsuit that talks about how in 2004, the New York Giants hired Tom Coughlin over Romeo Cornell and Lovey Smith. Well, would anybody who's a football fan say that was a bad decision? I think that was a great decision. Tom, that's probably the best decision the Giants have made. That's probably the last good decision they ever made was hiring Tom Coughlin and then drafting Eli Manning. So uh, so I, I don't know. It, it's hard in, in that, right? Now, I understand that uh, Romeo Cornell and Lovie Smith are minority candidates, but um, in my opinion, and, and I think most football fans would agree with me, Tom Coughlin's a better coach than those guys. So, so how do I know that Josh McCown's not the next great coach? I, I don't know that. Yeah, you could argue, make that argument for sure. I think the issue they're having is that, like, you have guys in the <coughs> league who have paid their dues for and been assistants for a long time, like Eric Bieniemy, like uh, Terrell Austin. Like Same thing Chris, applies Chris, for Eric, for them, though, Mike. Chris, how do I know Eric Bieniemy's not a great coach? I get that. Maybe he's the next great coach. I don't know. 
Yeah, well, there's, uh, but, but yeah, yeah the that, pro- that's what's hard about these lawsuits. You don't know who's a good coach until you hire the guy. Yeah, and their complaint, I think, is mostly that those guys not getting hired. Whereas, like, if you're Nick Sirianni, you're a coordinator for one year, or if you're one of the guys who hangs out on Sean McVay's staff for a year, you're getting a fast track to a job where these guys are in the league for a long time and doing good at their jobs. They're just not getting the opportunities. That that's true too, but but let's uh you know play devil's advocate there. Uh, you think the Bengals regret hiring Zach Taylor from Sean McVay's staff? Not right now, they don't. Uh, no, <laughs> they say, they probably say well, you know what we made the right decision. This guy is great. We're in the Super Bowl. Okay. So it's a it's a hard one. It's hard. It's hard. It's a it's a very difficult. Uh, you know that any football fan knows that hiring a head coach is a very difficult thing to do. Okay. I also found what I was looking for. It was a section 23. I'm going to share the screen here in terms of what he's looking for. So this was earlier in the prayer relief. Uh, and I knew I'd seen the this. Prayers, the prayers, I found it too. The prayers down on page 56. Yeah, I'm on page eight. So here's what's going on okay. right there. So among the other relief. So he's so, he's yeah. seeking injunctive relief. All right. Yeah, he yeah. wants. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of different injunctive relief things that he wants. So he's seeking that in addition to mon- monetary damage. Aside from the monetary damage, which is the down at the bottom of the prayer relief he's mentioned here. He's seeking the following injunctive relief. Increase the influence of black individuals in hiring and termination decisions for general manager, head coach, offensive defensive coordinator positions. Ensure diversity of ownership by creating and funding a committee dedicated to sourcing black investors take majority ownership stakes in NFL teams. Ensure diversity of decision-making by permitting select black players and coaches to participate in the interviewing process for general manager, head coach, and offensive defensive coordinator positions. Increase the objectivity of hiring and termination decisions for general manager, head coach, and offensive and defensive coordinator positions. Require NFL teams to reduce to writing the rationale for hiring and, and termination decisions, including a full explanation of the basis for any subjective influences, for example, trust, personality, interview performance, etc. Require NFL teams to consider side-by-side comparisons of objective criteria, such as past performance, experience, and objective qualifications. Increase number of black offensive and defensive coordinators. Create fun and fund a training program for lower-level black coaches who demonstrate aptitude for coaching and interest in advancing a coordinator position. Incentivize the hiring and retention of black general managers, head coaches, and offensive defensive coordinators through monetary, draft, and other compensation such as additional salary cap space. And complete transparency with respect to pay for all general managers, head coaches, and offensive defensive coordinators. So he basically wants to completely overhaul the rerule process and get rid of these potential sham interviews and actually give these guys more of a ladder to potentially grow their careers. Yeah. Yeah. So, so look, uh, unlikely that that stuff's actually going to happen in full, but what ends up happening in these lawsuits is that if, and when they settle, the parties can agree on some sort of injunctive relief that they'll, they'll implement. So it'll be some mild version of that. If this lawsuit's successful. All right. So right now I feel like, we're good. Like, what do you like? I know this is again pure speculation because this is only just filed today. Like, and it's going to be, I'm sure, a bit between discovery and the motions and all of that. So, like, how long do you think this trial could potentially last? Well, I don't think this lawsuit ever gets the trial. Uh, it'll probably settle out of court before then, but, but it'll be at least a year and a half, two years before it gets the trial if it does. Uh, the, the class action lawsuits have various steps. So the first thing that's going to happen here is the NFL is going to respond to this complaint when they're going to do so with the motion to dismiss. They're going to seek to dismiss the complaint. Uh, and they're going to say that the case should be put on ice while that, that motion is adjudicated. The plaintiffs are going to oppose the, that. They're going to say the case should move forward. Depends who the judge is. Uh, as last I saw, they haven't got a judge yet. That's assigned at random. So some judges are 
very much in favor of staying cases, others aren't. So it depends who the judge is, whether or not the case gets stayed up at that point. The motion will get decided. Uh, I think they'll they'll probably prevail. The plaintiffs will probably prevail and keep the case alive, at least in part. Uh, and, and then you'll get into the discovery process and then the case will settle, I think. But if it doesn't, uh, you complete discovery. And then once discovery is completed, you have what's called the class certification stage. So you can't just bring a lawsuit as a class action. You can bring a lawsuit and say you're going to seek class certification, but you need to then make a motion to the court. And the court has to determine whether the case qualifies for class action status. And there's a variety of factors that the court has to consider. It's developed in the rules and the case law, the court, and you need to make an evidentiary showing that you can satisfy all those factors. So that briefing process will happen. And then if they prevail on that, and the class is certified, the NFL does two things. One, they take an immediate appeal to the Second Circuit, uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Second Circuit gets to decide whether or not they want the appeal or not. And two, they move for summary judgment. And summary judgment is, a, is basically a judge, here are all the facts. No reasonable juror could possibly find that we did anything illegal. You should dismiss the case. And then, and only then, if they survive all of that, does the case go to trial? And this is why most lawsuits and especially most class action lawsuits settle because that is a lot of time, a lot of risk and a lot of money to pay lawyers. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely going on. I do feel like also, I feel like a secondary goal here, apart from getting into discovery, I think it's going to be the first objective here is I think just again, the negative PR the league's going to take for having this lawsuit hanging over their head. I think that's going to be a big factor. I think it's being calculated by the plaintiffs. I'm again, I'm completely speculating. I have no Inside knowledge is that you do not use, you're not working on this legal case, but sort of creating pressure on the league to sort of overhaul their own policies proactively to try and get this lawsuit settled, get it get out of the courts. Yeah, I think there's part of that, sure. And there's a part of that in any lawsuit like this, whether it be a bombshell sexual harassment suit, there's public pressure to just get the, make the case go away from a PR perspective. So that's definitely part of it. Yeah, for sure. I think... The problem, but Mike, let, let me add one thing. The problem that the NFL has here, though, most lawsuits you can make go away with money. I don't think this lawsuit goes away with money. I think Brian Flores wants some sort of meaningful change in addition to money. And, and that that's that's harder. Yeah, I think that's the difference here. It's not like it's not like <laughs> Brian Flores is sitting there saying, like, okay, give me X number of dollars, I will take my bowl and go home and not worry about working again and, if, and get rid of this lawsuit. I think he is actually taking the noble's pursuit, as I said at the top of the segment here, is that he is looking to help the future generations of African-American coaches have a better chance of advancing their own careers. And that is I, not something you can write a dollar sign in front of. That That's correct. And in, the, in, the, in those cases become more difficult to resolve. Yes. It would take, and I think this is something that it, de it depends on. I know the league has said for years, like, we and like we care about diversity. They put slogans on helmets. They put slogans on the fields. But the actions have not lived up to the words. No, uh, and and I think they actually point that out in the complaint too. That you know that, that it's it's nice that the NFL lets the players wear uh, some slogans on their helmets, but that that that's not that's not meaningful. No, it's not meaningful. And I think that's a good place to leave it here. I think we kind of dove into all the juicy into all the interesting things of this lawsuit. We'll keep track of this as it goes forward and. I'm sure we'll be back again, Phil, soon because these owners and the players in baseball also cannot get their acts together. No, um, um, 
I'm surprised. Uh, you know, we've that's something that you and I have talked about on this podcast for about two years now. So we're not totally shocked that this happened, but I, I, I thought they'd be a lot closer to a deal now. I'm, I'm starting to get worried that that we're going to miss games. Yeah, as of right now, we're again same same day. This actually happened before the uh, Flores lawsuit dropped here. That the owners and the players met again, and again, it feels like it's sort of a repeat of what's going on here with the pandemic negotiations back from 2020, where it feels like the owners are just sitting here saying, "Okay, this is our only number. We're not moving off it whatsoever." And the players are trying to come up with solutions, and the owners not budging whatsoever. Yep, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, it's it's getting concerning. Uh, and I'm sure I'll be back to talk about it in a few weeks and I'll uh, um, keep my eyes on on this Flores lawsuit and happy to jump on anytime anything uh, develops to talk about it. Yeah, I also going to sh- do one more screen share in terms of timelines just to keep track. I'm sure we're going to be back on after the Super Bowl or if by some miracle they have a deal before this, which is not going to happen. It's gonna be, there's no shot of this. No, there's no shot. So uh, there's a good article on ESPN from Jesse Ryers with some timelines here. So. These are what days we have to worry about stuff being pushed back. So pitchers and catcher is supposed to be like two days out of the Super Bowl. If you don't have a deal by February 8th, start worrying. So, and Jeff Pazby said today, spring training is getting delayed. So this one, I think we're blowing best. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm worried, Mike. I'm worried that we're going to end up with a, a shortened season again. Yeah. I'll keep going here. February 26th, spring training games begin. The date on this one is February 19th. Again, I could see them pushing past this date, too. I feel like the owners are very dug in at this point. It's based on the reporting, it seems that way. So I think right now the owners are trying to call the players bluff and say, you want real change. I believe Evan Drellich from the Athletic has said this before, is that they're willing to sacrifice games. It's concerning. Yeah. And this is the big one here. March 31st, opening day. The deadline here, March 3rd. I think that's when you really have to be nervous here because... We've learned from the pandemic. Oh, uh, if March 3rd comes and goes, then we're getting a shortened season. Yeah, because we learned from summer camp a couple of years ago that two weeks is not enough time to get ready for the season. So the Blaze players are going to need at least three, three and a half to get ready. So if we're not getting close to a deal by that point, you're, and again, we'll see if this is, I think this is the deadline you're circling here on the calendar. It's sort of, okay, on the 3rd, if we are not close, we have big issues. Agreed. All right, Phil, thanks for all the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, like I said, any any material changes in that Flores suit, I'm happy to jump on. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast, talking college basketball. We're in February. Join me today for what seems like always monthly residency on the podcast, the host of the Seeing Red podcast, Troy Moriello. Troy, how are you? Thank you for uh, for having me on. It's always a pleasure coming in once a month. And uh, like I, like we said before, looking forward to, to March. We get to do this a little bit more frequently as well. Yeah, heads up for you podcast listeners. Obviously, you're going through football mode right now with the football season. Sorry, riding up. We're getting rid of the Super Bowl here, but... Come March, there's going to be a lot of college basketball, especially since it looks like the baseball people can't get out of their own way in the lockout. So we'll have more college basketball coverage coming your way. Yes, March Madness is always uh, is always the big focus for sure, but I think that maybe gets a little bit heightened this year when we probably won't even have baseball games to look forward to. So definitely looking forward to March. Yeah, absolutely. The last time we talked was right after the new year, and I think for me, I want to talk a little bit about some of the headlines here. I think, obviously, I think the big thing for me is that 
you know, the Omicron surge we were being played with the first time, I feel like it's pretty much gone away. I feel like at most, he made one or two gains a week postponed where we talk about closer to like a third of them at that point. I feel like we've gotten a lot better in that case. Yeah, yeah, at that point, the last time that we we spoke, I think we said it felt like there hasn't been like, you know, a consistent schedule in like two or three weeks, um, you know, from like mid-December to early January. But yeah, I think that, you know, we've kind of passed through that wave now. Um, seems like I think most teams probably had so many infections that, you know, it's not really possible for them to to uh, have games canceled now. But, you know, we got out of the way. Uh, hopefully we're past that. Hopefully it doesn't come back up now. Uh, for the last, you know, two months of the season and uh, we can just enjoy games. But like you said, you know, we're really not seeing that many postponements or cancellations, which is always a good thing in in, uh, in these times. Yeah, we're getting all the makeup games thrown in here too. So you're getting more games every, every week, which is good for us and not, may not as good for the teams. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That a little bit less rest for those guys, probably some tired legs. But yeah, for in terms of a, of a viewing standpoint, you know, for us sitting at home on our couches, there's a big game to watch uh, almost every single night. You, know, you you got teams playing on on Monday and then playing again on Thursday. You know, on two days rest, you got teams playing Sundays and Tuesdays. It's it's awesome. It's it's re it's really fun uh, for the viewers for sure. Yeah, I mean, last night we were recording on Wednesday, February second. Last night alone, we had some good games. We had, I mean, the Alabama Auburn clash, Providence St. John's. That's unfortunate for you, the Johnnies lost. And a fav my favorite one here, the atmosphere at Texas Tech when Chris Beard comes back and the Fan base out there, probably as loud as I've ever seen for a college basketball regular season game. Yeah, yeah, you gotta you gotta uh, feel happy for Texas Tech, right? They get a little a little measure of revenge on uh, on Chris Chris Beard in Texas. Yeah, that was uh that was a really cool environment, a really cool atmosphere for sure. And uh, you know, you, you see that that type of, of stuff sometimes in, in in college sports that like that like hatred for a guy coming back. Uh, you know, the videos with the team bus rolling in and all the students kind of uh, flipping it off. That was that was really fun. And, uh, you know, that just kind of adds to the rivalry of, of these games. And, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, that that was a really cool, cool environment and uh, good for them to get the win, to get a little bit of revenge on their their former coach. I don't know if that makes up totally for the for the sting, although Texas Tech seems to be in a pretty good spot right now. So uh, I don't know if they're entirely missing him too much. And his tenure at Texas so far hasn't been all that successful. So. Uh, I think Texas Tech, as of right now, at least, has the last laugh. Yeah, for sure. Let's stay in the SEC and the Big 12 for a bit, because obviously you're coming off the weekend here. We had the Big Big 12 SEC Challenge, and a lot of these games were a lot of fun. So I know you're keeping an eye on some of these. So, like, what was your big takeaway from the from that challenge? A ton of good games, of course. You know, Oklahoma, Auburn, um, Alabama upsetting Baylor was a big one. I think that the, the headline, of course, though, is, is Kentucky going into Kansas and, and just really blowing out Kansas uh, up by 20 at the half, ends up winning, I think, by 18 in that game. Um, you know, Kentucky's a team that, like, I, I like going into the season for sure, um, and they had the expectations going into the year, but I just – they weren't, like, fully on my radar in terms of being, like, a national contender, I guess I would say. Um, that's the kind of performance that really, you know, for fans like me who maybe aren't watching every single game locked into every single Kentucky game or every single SEC game, that's the type of game that really puts your, yourself on like the national radar for a lot of fans to go into Kansas and to dominate a Kansas team that I thought was, is a national title contender. And I still do think that they are a national title contender, um, for Kentucky to do that. That was, that was really, really impressive. So like, it was, like you said, it was a great uh, day of games, a lot of really fun games, but I think that the headline for sure is uh, is uh, is Kentucky blowing out Kansas on the road. Yeah, and that's not something that happens very often because Kansas is one of the one of, if not the best home court advantages in college basketball. Like nobody goes to the fog and usually wins, let alone goes mm -hmm. and blows out Kansas. That almost never happens. 
Yeah, exactly. That's what made it so impressive is that never really even felt like much of a game. So that was, uh, that was big for Kentucky. And just, you know, in, in, in terms of the, the big 12 SEC in general, I, I love that they play it uh, kind of like late in the season. It always feels like it's the last weekend of January, the last Saturday of January. I love that they do that because you get, you know, the, the fully formed teams, you know, no one is still trying to like round into form at that point. Uh, the teams are pretty much who they are. You know, it's not like these other, you know, the big 10 ACC, uh, the Gavit games, the big, the big 12, uh, big East, you know, that are played in, in November and December, you know, where you kind of still have teams figuring out their rotations, figuring out their lineups by the end of, of January, you know, that that's all formed. We know who's good. We know who's not so good. Uh, I love that they do that. It's always like a nice change of pace, you know, at the end of January, uh, where we're kind of in the flow of conference play. And then there's that one weekend where we have all these, uh, new and fresh matchups. That's always fun for me. Yeah, I think two other games I'm going to throw out here from the challenge that also stuck out to me. I'm going to save the Alabama thing for a bit because Alabama, we have to talk about it by itself because they're one of the strangest teams in the country this season. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say TCU picking up the win at home against LSU is big. I think that program really needed that win. And I think that the Horn Frogs are getting as close to like getting off the bubble as possible in there. And the other one here is how the hell Texas did not blow that game against Tennessee when they were up so much. And then I think they're out scoring something like, 20 to two down the stretch and only one by a point. Yeah. Like that's not a good reflection on the Longhorns. No. Yeah. And, and like I said, it just, they haven't really like clicked all season long. It feels like um, Texas, you know, they, they just, they, they haven't, I thought that they were going to be a top 10 team all season long and they just haven't looked like it. Uh, like you said, they do escape with the win there, but then uh, Tuesday night they lose at Texas tech in a game that they were never really in, in my opinion. Um, yeah. So they just haven't really clicked all season long for me, uh, a team that's really been disappointing in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. And, and now I could sort of go forward here. Like we talked last time here, we've had a lot of these guys like, who is the best team? Like, is it Duke? Is it Purdue? Is it Kansas? Is it Baylor? Right now, it seems like we have finally two front runners here. Auburn and Gonzaga sort of started to pull away from the rest of the pack. They are one and two in the polls. Gonzaga was number one. Auburn passed them after their big win against Kentucky a couple of weeks ago. They stayed at the top of the polls. So you had to put your chip on one. Say, who is, who is the best team in the country? Yeah, so. Auburn right now is the the best team in the country. I don't think that that's, you know, I, I just don't know how you would argue against it. What are they? They, they've won 18 in a row. They haven't lost the game since late uh, November and it was a double overtime loss. It's their only loss of the season. Like, I don't know, you know, they play in a power conference. They play in one of the better conferences in America in the SEC. I don't know how you argue against Auburn not being the best team in the country right now, at least. Um, but if I'm picking a team to, to win the national title, I still think I'd go with Gonzaga just because I know that they've done it. Um, you know, I, I just I, I would pick Gonzaga to be the national title favorite at this point. But I do think that right now on February 2nd, Auburn is the best team in the country. I do think that's going to change as we go uh, into March. Maybe they've maybe peaked a little bit too early. Maybe they're playing their best basketball a little too early. Uh, not to say that they're not going to be, you know, a number one or number two seed and, and obviously be poised for a deep run. But if I was picking a favorite to win the national title, I think I'd still go with Gonzaga. I do think that uh, I checked the odds. I do think that Gonzaga is still the national title favorite at like uh, five or six to one, while Auburn is, is a little bit lower, like eight to one. So I would still go with Gonzaga uh, in terms of the national title picture. But right now I do think Auburn's better. But that's the fun thing about this season, right? Is like we do have like – I don't know, 10 teams that you could say would, would win the national or could win the national title this year where, you know, last year it was really last year's it's always fun college basketball, but last year was really Gonzaga Baylor. And then, you know, a pretty steep drop off between everyone else this year, 
you could make the case for, I would say like 10 teams, maybe at least 10 teams that, you know, if they get hot at the right time, they can reel off six wins and, and win it all. And that's always fun. That's always fun filling out the brackets when you have, you know, uh, you know, a bracket pool that has, you know, 10 different teams as national champions. Um, that's always a, a more of a fun watch. And I think that's kind of where this season is headed where like, yes, you have your favorites, but there's a lot of teams that are in the mix that you could make a case for to win the national title. Yeah, for sure. This is not 2019 where, you know, it's Duke or the field. That was, I felt like the bracket mm-hmm. was like, and yeah, I'm glad you brought the odds up here. And I'm going to share the screen here. I did go to uh, FanDuel and you're talking about the odds here. And you were right that Gonzaga is favored right now. They are plus 600 to win. Auburn mm-hmm. number two plus 800. And I'm happy to say I did walk in on Auburn at plus 1300 a couple of weeks ago. It was a future. Oh, so OK. Ha- very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Another one I'll throw out here in, in the one that I like here. I got UCLA at a plus 2200 before they beat Arizona. So that's another number I'm happy I locked in. Yeah, uh huh. I wanted to get UCLA. I did not do it. Even now, I feel like sixteen to one is a little bit uh, high for them. I, you know, they were they were team in the Final Four last year. UCLA. They were kind of battle tested. You know, those odds are a little odd to me. I would I would even at sixteen to one, I would consider taking UCLA as like a like a little bit of a dark horse. Yeah, we'll get to UCLA in a, a little bit here. When I start talk about some teams that have been towards the top. They have not mm-hmm. done as well in, it could, for various reasons here because they've seen questions on all of them. I want to start with Duke, which obviously coming off in the start of their season, they go, they beat Gonzaga in Vegas. Everybody's like all on them. They go mm-hmm. lose Ohio State. And then they have sort of been sleepwalking through, I would say, the yeah. mediocre ECC where they've lost a couple of times. They played close games against teams really shouldn't. They've won by two at home mm-hmm. against Clemson. And I don't know what it is, but like I, f- I forget who said it, but – the metaphor I think is great. It's like Duke tends to play with their food a bit too much. And like, that's something that scares the hell out of me against a team against a March Madness scenario here. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And I think that's, that's absolutely right. You know, I think that they know that they're the best team in the ACC and they're really like the only true contender out of the ACC, I think. And like you mentioned, I think it might be kind of hard for them to get up for some of these games. Um, you would hope that they get up for their next game at UNC, but you know, some of these matchups, you know, you know, against, you know, Louisville and, uh, and Notre Dame, it was, it was good this season, actually. But, you know, like it, it just might be hard for them to get up. And like you said, uh, in, in a tournament setting, you know, obviously you would hope that you're up for every game. But if you do play with your food, like you mentioned, if you can't put teams away, if you can't uh, close out, you know, if you're up by 10 with eight minutes to go and you can't put that game away, that's how you lose games. That's how you get picked off in March. Uh, when you can't close these games out, when you can't pull away. And yeah, it does, it does, maybe it does feel like they've been sleepwalking a little bit, but uh, that's definitely a concerning trend for March for a team that, you know, hasn't really just been able to like hit on that next gear and really uh, pull away from some teams that they, they should be pulling away from uh, in the ACC because they're clearly the best team in the ACC by far. Yeah, you look at that league. I mean, you and I can play with that league a lot. That league is very uh-huh. bad. And the fact that like we're talking about them possibly having five teams bothers me no end, but you see. <laughs> the class of teams they're dealing with here. It's like you look at the where they are compared to everyone else who's down here. You're sitting here going, you know, why aren't they going 18 and two in the ACC easily cruising the one line? Now we're talking about them more possibly as a three C, which makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know that when you look at who's in the ACC this season, like we mentioned, there's, there's really no national title contenders uh, outside of Duke. You know, you've got Virginia, Florida state, Louisville, all feeling like they have down years. Uh, Syracuse isn't really very good this season either. You know, a lot of teams are having down years. Even UNC is who's eight and three in the conference right now. Like I don't, I still don't think that they're like much of a threat nationally. So yeah, like you just feel like Duke should be kind of running away with that conference a lot more than they are. 
And um, yeah, you know, it, it does, it should be feeling like it's one of those years where Duke, like you mentioned, wins like 16, 17 games in the conference and, uh, and gets that one seed. And it just hasn't really fully clicked for them yet. I do think that they'll be okay, but uh, yeah, it just hasn't fully clicked for them just yet. You know, the team I'm concerned about is one, I think this is the one that you and I put the jinx on here. We put the jinx on Purdue. We can talk about them <laughs> after, did. after their performance in the uh, big 10 AC challenge, they dominated Florida state. They said, Oh, this is the favorite. They went number one. They're going to win the big Ten. They could win the national championship. Since then, they've had, I want to say they've been up and down. I mean, the overall record looks great. They're 18 and three. They're seven and three, the Big Ten. But I mean, mm-hmm. they lose at the buzzer to Rutgers and the overtime to be NC State. They lose to Wisconsin at home. They struggle against Penn State. They struggle against uh, uh, Ohio State. They nearly blow that huge lead. It feels like, again, I know the Big Ten is better league, but I feel like Purdue should be playing better than they are. Against Ohio State, where they uh, Jaden Ivey hits the buzzer beater or the the shot at the end of the game there, yeah, that was what they had. To, I I turned that game off. I told you I, I shut that game off when they were up by twenty in the second half, and then uh, I turned it back on, and it was a minute to go, and they were, they were up by three or something. Um, you know, at home against a, a good Ohio State team, don't get me wrong, but yeah, that's like a, a weird performance. That's even a game where you win it, and you're just kind of like, do I even feel good about that game? Um, I, I still do think that Purdue is one of my uh, national title contenders. I still think that they're capable of going on a run just because they have so much depth. They have so many guys, I think, on that team uh, that can score like 10, 15, 20 points a game. Uh, and I just I love their depth. But yeah, they are, they are just maybe hitting a little bit of a, of a rough patch here. They maybe have gotten it back on track. Uh, with a couple of wins in a row. And if you look at their upcoming schedule, uh, Minnesota and then Michigan, those are two winnable games, I would say, to maybe really right the ship now and, and start to put together a legitimate uh, winning streak for them. But yeah, they, you know, it's been kind of up and down for them. I, I would hope that uh, that they are, you know, more rounded into form now as we go into March, because I still think that they are one of my national title contenders for sure. Yeah, Ohio State game, I looked it up here. They were up 52-32 with 14-39 yeah. to go, and that ends up being a three-point game. I need to win the buzzer. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. When you, when you, when you, I mean, everyone's going to blow a lead at some point, but a 20 point lead at home uh, to need a buzzer beater. That was, that's, that's the game where like, you know, I mean, I, I think like as bad about a team that you can feel in a buzzer beater win, that's, that's, that's about it. I think for that one. Yeah. I almost felt a bit like the Ram game in the second round of the playoffs against Tampa Bay where they blow the huge lead and they still find a way to win. So that's one you hope that Purdue follows the Ram lead and just, you know, your covers and they're in the final four that you don't, you, yeah. you don't know that yet. Yeah, exactly. Not the best feeling after that one. The third one I want to mention here is Kansas, which obviously they looked like, I think until about last week, they were going to be on the one line up there with Baylor and some of the other teams in their league. Mm-hmm. And then of late, I mean, they get trounced by Kentucky, double overtime beat Texas Tech. They they narrowly win a couple of road games. It's K-State and Oklahoma are not two of the strongest teams in this league. I know that they don't didn't, they had a good win last night. They beat Iowa State by nine without Ochai Abaji, which is impressive, but is, do you feel Kansas is trending the wrong way? Um, I, I would have, if you asked me this 24 hours, I would have said yes. 24 hours ago, I would have said yes. Uh, I was really impressed with them last night against uh, against Iowa State. Uh, like you said, miss, missing Ochai Abaji, um, winning that game against, I think, a really like desperate Iowa State team who's now, I think, three and six in the, uh, in the Big 12. Yeah, like that was an impressive game for them last night. That's the type of game that can not like turn a season around because I, I like, I, I don't think their season was, was heading. Uh, like nowhere, but you know, that that's an impressive win on the road in a really tough environment out there in Ames uh, to go out there and get that win uh, without your best player. 
uh, you know, a guy who's averaging 20, 20 something points a game. That was really, really impressive. That's, you know, dealing with some adversity on the road. Uh, so I, I do think that that maybe has helped them right the ship. I was impressed with that. Um, you know, after uh, the, the blowout loss against Kentucky and uh, just looking at their, their schedule right now, you know, if they would have dropped that game, they could have been, you know, looking at, at, at somewhat of an extended losing streak. They got Baylor this weekend and then they go on the road against Texas. You know, I know that we just kind of ripped Texas a little bit, but that's not an easy game either. So, you know, in the Big 12, it's, it's a good conference. It's got a couple of good teams at the top. Uh, that was a big win, I think, last night for Kansas to kind of right the ship and to avoid, you know, a, a three four game losing streak. Uh, after that really horrible performance on Saturday. So they impressed me a lot last night. I do think that they're on the right path. And I, and I will say this, of the, the three teams that we just mentioned, Duke, uh, Kansas, and Purdue, I, I still think that I, w- I would say two of them are still making the Final Four this year. I, I still, you know, depending on how the bracket shapes up, I would still pick two of those three to go to the Final Four. Um, I, I think Kansas is, is one is one of, if not the best teams in the country. Uh, I'm not as high on Duke, and I, as you know, I love Purdue. So I would still say two of those teams are, are I would pick to go to the Final Four right now that we just mentioned, despite their recent struggles. Yeah, absolutely. And now I want to get to probably the most fascinating team in the country right now, which is Alabama, because you never know what version of them you're going to see on a given day. Mm-hmm. I mean, they start off the season eight and one. They beat Gonzaga and Houston back to back. And their one loss mm-hmm. is a two Iona in the ESPN events invitation in Orlando. And since then, these are some of the results that they've had. They lose at Memphis. That result has gotten much worse since then because yeah. <laughs> Memphis has really fallen off a cliff. They, uh-huh. they add the bye game against Davidson. They lose at and a last minute thing replacing for Colorado State and Colorado State had COVID issues. They beat Tennessee at home. They lose to Missouri at Missouri by six. They lose at Mississippi State by two. Beat LSU at home by three. Lose to Georgia by six at, at Georgia. Beat Baylor 87 78. Like, what the hell do you make of this team? Yeah, if you want to yeah, like sum up their season, I think it would be their their two games last week, right? They they lose to a Georgia team that stinks, and then they get and then they go and they beat uh Baylor, who's a national title contender. Yeah, they are just like the quintessential college basketball team where you just you can't figure them out. They could beat anybody, they can lose to anybody. I mean, there's been points of their season where I've been like, wow, this team is is really good. This is like a top. 15 top 10 team you know after they beat Gonzaga I was like man this team is, is going to be a national title contender the way that they look in that Gonzaga game I believe they had like a big lead in that game I think Gonzaga made a little bit of a comeback but yeah and then they have games like you mentioned against Memphis and against Mississippi State and against Georgia where it's just like is this even a tournament team like are they even a going to be in the field of 64 it's just it's been fascinating how how um, up and down they've been and yeah they, they're just like the definition of a college basketball team and you know, that's, that's what makes it kind of fun uh, in March. You know, I'm sure the Alabama fans don't love it, but I think that, you know, if you're asking me one team that it wouldn't surprise me if they lost their first round game or if they made like an elite eight run, it would be Alabama. Like nothing would surprise me with them. Like I said, they can get picked off in the first round, um, you know, depending on who they play or they can, you know, rattle off three or four straight wins against good opponents and, and find themselves in a regional final. Literally nothing at this point would surprise me with them. Um, and yeah, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how, how the rest of their season shapes up. But uh, yeah, if, if you're looking for like a, a you know, a, a little snapshot of their season, just look at last week, losing to Georgia and then beating Baylor. That's just, that's pretty much how it's been for them all season long. Yeah. That team to me. And I mean, Obviously, if you're there, are a couple of teams in here like Iona and Davidson who are really hoping Alabama like like stabilize yeah. themselves because that's basically their whole resume. It's like their win over Alabama. Like Iona's on neutral floor. Like 
Davidson's technically on neutral floor, but it's in Alabama, so I kind of more as a road game here. But mm-hmm. like Alabama, I mean, their schedule the rest of the way. They have Kentucky Saturday home. They go to Ole Miss, Arkansas, Mississippi State at Kentucky, at Vanderbilt, South Carolina, Texas A&M at LSU. It's like it's like a good mix of like top teams and landmines in there. And, and knowing them, they'll probably like sweep Kentucky and then and then lose to like Vanderbilt and Mississippi State at home. And knowing, knowing how their season has gone so far, would, nothing would surprise me with them. Yeah, and I'm telling you right now, like they are going to be in that 8-9 game. I'm calling that for a fact. And like whoever draws in the second round is going to be terrified. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, it's like I said, like they could lose that 8-9 game. They could, they could, you know, get knocked out in the first round. That wouldn't shock me. And, yeah, you know, if they played a one seed, I mean, they've beaten Gonzaga already, who is – on the one line. Um, yeah, they could, they could absolutely upset a one seed. I bet you're going to see a lot of people if they are on that eight, nine game, picking them, or even if they're in like a seven, 10, picking them to beat a one or two seed in the second round, you're going to see a lot of people uh, with that. That's going to be like the trendy pick on the brackets. I bet. Absolutely. Now let's go ahead to go out to the pack 12 for a minute here. Cause UCLA and Arizona sort of separate themselves at the top of that league. USC, I don't buy They have too many weird results. I mean, they got swept by Stanford. That tells you kind of all you need to know right there about how good USC is, but we saw them play last week at Pauley Pavilion. UCLA wins by 16. They had a break. Arizona is playing their third game in five days. So they have a rematch tomorrow in uh, in Arizona here. So, like, which of those teams do you like better from what you've seen? Yeah, I'm still uh, on UCLA's bandwagon. You know, it's just, I don't know. I think it's maybe it's East Coast bias or something because it's not like Arizona has gotten a ton of the, the headlines either. But it just feels like UCLA has really flown under the radar for sure. And, you know, of course they're playing games at 10, 11 o'clock at night. Uh, they're not going to get as much shine as the the East coast teams for sure. Um, but this is still a team that I think almost everyone said was the final four team going into the season. And, you know, largely they've delivered on it. What are they? They're 16 and two on the season. You know, they've, they've, I, in my opinion, they've basically lived up to expectations in terms of what we thought they were going to be. Um, I still do think that they're the best team in this conference. They have the win over Arizona going to be a really fun game coming up as well. Um, like you mentioned, I think U- uh, USC has kind of maybe regressed a little bit to that, that clear third best team in the PAC 12. Um, but if I was picking, you know, UCLA versus Arizona, I'm still going with UCLA. Uh, I, I, I saw Arizona play this weekend against uh, Arizona state. They look really good. I know Arizona state uh, stinks this year, but you know, I, I'm still on the UCLA bandwagon. Um, I still do think that they're a team that is definitely contending for a final four. Um, I think I picked them to go to the final four earlier in the season. So uh, they're still my pick as the best team in the past. Well, of course that can change uh, as the, uh, as the season goes on. But as of right now, I think I would still go with UCLA over Arizona. I'm with you. Obviously I'm a bit biased. I have the shekels on UCLA right now. I went to championship. So as a, <laughs> as a little factor in here, but I'll also point out besides the Arizona win, they played three games last week. The last two were without Johnny Juzang and Jalen Clark and mm-hmm. COVID protocols. And they dominated both Cal and Stanford. And I guess their Cal and Stanford are not great, but Dominating both those teams without your two without two of your key rotation players and your star in Juzang, I think is a good good marker for that team. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned Juzang. You know, a guy like that can can win you games in March. You know, a guy like that can can put teams on as we saw him do last year, right? We saw him do that uh, all throughout the tournament last year. You know, when you have a guy like that, you know, who's a top, you know, top five player in college basketball right now, and you you surround him with really solid depth and really solid pieces as well. Uh, UCLA is a team that. I think is, is certainly a national title contender. They are one of those 10 teams, I think, that can for sure win the national title this year. Yeah, now let's get to your conference here, the Big East, which has had some fun here. I mean, I'm pulling up the standings right now as of recording on Wednesday here. I mean, Providence is on top of the league, 9-1. and one. They just beat St. John's last night. Villanova, 9-2. and two. UConn, Marquette, 
Xavier all ranked. Then you have like Creighton and Seton Hall sort of that bubble area. And then this, the other, I'll get to St. John's. They're not in the picture right now, but like of that stack here, I mean, how many teams think this league can get in? Yeah, uh, I would say probably we're looking at uh, possibly seven, a max of seven. I don't know if they'll get seven in, but I think that, you know, you look at, like we mentioned, Providence, Villanova, UConn, Marquette, Xavier, all ranked. Uh, and then you have Creighton and Seton Hall who are, you know, kind of trending on the bubble, uh, maybe, you know, middle middle to lower pack of that conference. Uh, I think that the dream would be getting seven in. They'll probably end up with six, I would say. But, you know, yeah, we're kind of starting to define roles in the Big East a little bit. Uh, I think Villanova and Providence are kind of clearly at the top right now. That Providence team is really good. You know, I watched them last night. I, I've seen a bunch of their games, of course. Um, they're a really good team and they just know how to execute. Like they're so well coached. You know, they, they never seem like the moment is too big. They played in a really tough environment and at St. John's last night, never looked like they were, you know, out of control or, or phased by it at all. Uh, they know how to close games out. You know, people say that they're lucky, but they do execute at the end of these games and they are winning these close games. You know, you don't just go whatever it was six or seven and oh in uh, games decided by five points or less by, by accident. You know, I'm sure there's a little bit of luck there, but that's also execution. That's just knowing how to win games. So they're going to be a tough out for anyone in March. Um, Villanova, of course, is out there. And then, like you mentioned, there's kind of that that stretch of like UConn, Xavier, Marquette, teams that are ranked but maybe aren't, you know, at the top of the conference. Uh, then you've got Seton Hall and, and, uh, and Creighton, of course, who are, you know, maybe a little bit on the outside looking in in terms of the best teams in the conference, but still certainly uh, competitive for an NCAA tournament berth. Uh, and then you have my St. John's uh, along with uh, Butler, Georgetown and DePaul kind of, you know, taking up our residency at, at the, at the bottom of the conference, which is where it feels like those teams have been for the last uh, two decades or so. So very, very, uh, very fun times in the big East. We'll, uh, we'll see how it shapes out, but it is kind of interesting how we're starting to define roles in the big East, which was completely up in the air, like two months ago. Now we kind of know who's there and who's not. Yeah. And I want to touch on your team for makers. We, we talked in the non-conference play about how they did themselves no favors, their schedule. And now they basically had to, Pick up a bunch of good wins in the league. They're three and six in the Big East right now, and they had their only wins are home against DePaul, home against Georgetown, and at Seton Hall in the high school in the Walsh Gymnasium, which is by far their best win of the season. You had that in with the loss to Pittsburgh earlier this year, which is pretty bad. And I think the problem they're running into is here. I think they're probably going to do well against Georgetown and Butler, but those games don't do anything for them. It's like you're looking at here this stretch, like Villanova at home, UConn at home, at Xavier. At Xavier again, Xavier, and then at Marquette, and not having that Marquette second Marquette game reschedule right now, like that's one you really could use. And I think they better got to win like four or five of those. Have any shot? Yeah, yeah. I said this on my my podcast last night about St. John's. You know, they have all of these quad one opportunities in the Big East because the Big East is such a strong conference, as I mentioned. But you know, they just haven't done anything yet that makes you think they're going to take advantage of those opportunities. You know, they need to pick to start stacking quad one wins. And as of right now, like you mentioned, they just have that one win over Seton Hall and Walsh, which is kind of looking more like an anomaly at this point, which is looking like, you know, a, a really nice game for a mediocre to bad team uh, in the Big East. So, yeah, they, you know, they just they haven't executed. And, and, you know, last night was a great example of that tie game with, you know, three and a half minutes to go. And uh, they don't even get a shot up until the the final possession of the, or the final minute of the game. They go two minutes. They uh, have three straight turnovers, you know, losing a game at UConn when you're, you know, you're up by by a point with three seconds left, and you, you know, you can't get a stop there. Uh, you know, not being able to close out Providence on the road. There's just, there, there's, there's been games this season where it's just, you know, quad one opportunities for them. They just haven't taken advantage of them. And like, like we mentioned, when you have a really poor 
non-conference where you don't do yourself any favors, where you lose to Kansas, you lose to Indiana, you have you suffer a really bad loss to Pitt, uh, and you don't really, you know, you, you need to pick up a lot of quad one wins. You need to do a lot of work in the Big East, and that just hasn't been their MO really. Like I said, for the last two decades, they haven't played well in the Big East, and uh, and we're seeing it again this year. They just they're not able to close out games. They're just not executing at the end of games. Uh, and it's, it's costing them. And right now don't really see anything that makes me think they're going to turn it around in terms of, uh, of getting onto the bubble and getting into the NCAA tournament. Yeah. Now let's go. I think before you, we, play, we have a game, we're going to play a little bit. First, I want to go to the fun recurring gag here on the podcast. Like who gets more teams in here, the ACC or the or the West coast conference here. And this is something I actually got an answer to this. I actually submitted it online to John Rossi's college hoops today podcast. He actually answered on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I did pull the audio. So Here's what John had to say about this topic. And our first question comes from Mike Phillips, and it's John. Who will get more bids to the NCAA tournament, the West Coast Conference or the ACC? The West Coast Conference is very well set up to have four teams, Gonzaga, BYU, San Francisco, and St. Mary's, get to the NCAA tournament. Miami's win does a lot for the ACC. Duke, Wake Forest, Miami, and North Carolina all look pretty solid. I think the ACC will have more, but I got to tell you, on January 10th, that's still an interesting question. He did update this this week in the podcast, so I addressed the ACC again. He basically said, like, you know, we're kind of still at four teams, and you see teams like Florida State waste opportunities. You see teams like Wake Forest lose questionable games, like going to Syracuse and getting their doors blown out. It's like, I still think, I think it might be a tie. Yeah, it's fascinating that now we're, you know, we initially asked that question like a month and a half ago, and it's it's still kind of, you know, a legitimate debate here. Like, who's going to get more? Um, you know, I haven't looked at a ton of brackets yet because I don't know if it's it's really even worth it uh, in early February. But, yeah, you can make the case that, that the ACC doesn't break four teams getting in. Um, now, the WCC as well. I mean, obviously, Gonzaga is a lock. Um, but, you know, you, you never know if, if one of those teams could slip up uh, that are up there with them. I know San Francisco's dropped a couple of games, but um, yeah, like in, in terms of um, in terms of the ACC, like there's no guarantee that they get five in. I mean, of course, Duke is a lock. I think Miami will get in. Um, and then, you know, UNC probably, but then, you know, Notre Dame, Wake Forest, Florida State, like you mentioned, you know, not really taking advantage of opportunities. Do they get, you know, five in? I, I don't know if that's that's realistic right now. So, yeah, we could be trending towards a tie. Um, I would still, you know, think that the ACC has a, has a shot to get five, but I would say, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that we're still having this conversation into February now uh, over the ACC and the WCC. Yeah, I'm looking at, at Joe Lenardi's latest bracket on ESPN. He has four teams in each conference right now. He has mm-hmm. North Carolina and San Francisco, both in the last four buys from one uh-huh. from each conference. He has Florida State in his first four out, Notre Dame in his next four out. So those are the other two AC teams in that bracket. Gonzaga is a one seed in his bracket. I'm looking at the rest of this right now. I'll try and find this here. See who else is in this league that's worth mentioning. Miami is an eight seed. I'm trying to see who else here. North Carolina is an 11. I'm trying to see here. St. Mary's is a 9. San Francisco, I believe, is also an 11. I'm going to double check my math on that one. That's I, I define where the 11s are on this field. And yeah. Wake Forest is an 8 seed as well. Wake Forest has been good this season. Uh, I've been surprised by them. They were, they've uh, they've had a really, you know, a renaissance season for them. At, uh, what are they, 7-4 and four right now in the uh, – in the ACC, they've been impressive for sure. They could they could be like the wild card that uh, that breaks the tie maybe if they're 
if they're the uh, the number five team. Like, you know, it's just funny that the ACC is relying on like Notre Dame and Wake Forest to try to try to get them uh, up to like five bids. Even uh, it's definitely a down year for that league for sure. Yeah, Wake Forest. They're like they just come off a ninety four seventy two loss at Syracuse, and they before mm-hmm. two games before they beat North Carolina ninety eight seventy six at home. So they, who knows them? Exactly. Another another just classic college basketball team where you don't know what you're going to get uh, night in and night out for sure. All right. Now we're going to have some fun here because I am going to, I made some game because this is the time of the year. You know, you watch the college basketball a lot. You watch the halftime shows. You'll see that they do these blind resume games where they give you like team A, team B. Here's some key numbers. Here's some metrics. Like we're going to figure out like which team you would put in here. So you want to play this game. All right, so we're going to do five of these. So I've made five of them. So I'm going to start out here. We're going to share them on the screen so the audience can see at home what's going on. So we're going to start with blind resume number one. And for team A here, they are 15 and six. These numbers are current as of Monday. So all numbers are current as of Monday, the graphics. Net is 37. The 37th ranked strength of schedule, 21st non-conference strength of schedule, 0 and 6 against quad one teams. Team B, 13 and 7 overall, net of 50. Strength schedule 66, non conference schedule 154. Quad one is 154. Troy, if you were in the room, which team are you taking to go on the tournament? Man, that, that, that 0 and 6 in quad one, uh, you know, really, really is not impressive. The other team is 1 and 4, though, as well. Um, it's close in the net. The strength of schedule is, is, is in the favor of the team A as well. Um, I'd probably, even though they do not have a quad one win, just because their opponent only has one, I'm going to go with with Team A uh, if, if I had to pick one of these two. All right, so just to clarify here, I also made the answers here. I'm going to put that up here now so the audience can see which one you picked, which which resume you selected. So congratulations. North Carolina is going to the tournament. I had an idea Team A was North Carolina. I know that they were 0-6 in, 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 uh, in quad one. I had an idea that that was going to be UNC. Um, yeah, I, I would take them over Mississippi State at this point. In yeah, Mississippi State, the one thing I think is fascinating in the North Carolina debate is I'm gonna I'm gonna look at their schedule online. Just like the quad one games North Carolina has played, they have not been very good at them. I mean, you look at their losses here. I mean, since we did this graph, they picked up a win here. They've lost ninety three eighty four to Purdue, lost eighty nine to seventy two against Tennessee, lost ninety eight to sixty nine against Kentucky. They lost to. Wake Forest, 98-76, lost to Miami, 85-57, and their closest loss is at Notre Dame by five. So they've been being blown out by all the good teams. Yeah, they've, they've got a big opportunity this weekend against Duke. That's going to be a big one for them. So, yeah, I mean, as we said, you know, I just mentioned with St. John's, you got to start stacking some quad one wins. Uh, that's what the committee looks at. That's what helps your net rating uh, to be, you know, as of that graphic, 0-6. Uh, not doesn't exactly bode well for, uh, for UNC if that's going to continue. All right, let's go to number two here. So this is, team again, Team A, Team B. Team mm-hmm. A, 13-7 overall, net of 58, 76th-ranked strength of schedule, 66th non-conference, 2-4 and four in quad one. Team B, 12-7, net of 73, 57th-ranked strength of schedule, 249th in the non-conference, 3-5 and five in quad one. Troy, who goes to the field? I want to take Team B just because they have a couple, their, their quad one record is slightly better. Um, but that non-conference strength schedule, man, 249. Oof. Um, I'll, I'll go with team a again. Uh, I like that, you know, they only do have one less quad one win strength. of schedule is somewhat comparable, better net. I'll, t- I'll take team a in this one as well. 
All right, so now we're going to find out who Troy picked once again for the tournament. So he's already put North Carolina in the field, and this is one thing you'll be interested in to see who you ended up taking here. So Team A is the Oregon Ducks. They Again, they have those big wins over UCLA and USC on the road. Those are the two quad one wins. And the other team is Creighton. Uh, their strength schedule in non-conference is that bad. But, yeah, uh, you know, I'm a big Oregon guy. I, I picked them to go to the Final Four <laughs> last year, actually. Uh, they were, like, one of my sleeper teams last year. I love Oregon always. Um, you know, they, they, it's a different type of season for them this year. They're a little bit on the bubble. But, yeah, I guess I would go with Oregon over Creighton. That, that, that makes sense to me. All right, let's go to number three here. We're going to have another one up here. I made five total. So, Brian Resume number three. And again, sharing these on the screen for the YouTube version. And if people want to see the see this, just again, go to the YouTube channel. Mike Phillips on YouTube. You can pop these up here and see what's going on. So let me just check off of this. See, I gotta close this. I switched the I switched the order on these the last second. So bear with me, oh, people okay. at home. So <laughs> all right. So team A, fifteen and three overall, a net of thirty-five. Strike schedule is 149, 194th in the non-conference, 1-2 and two in quad 1. Team B, 17-5, and five, net of 43. Strike schedule is 74, non-conference 319, and they're 1-3 in, in quad 1. Man, the, either one of those strength schedules are very in, in, impressive, um, but the nets are up there for both of these teams. Um I'm going to take team A again, I, you know, same number of quad one wins, uh, relatively same number of opportunities. Yeah. I'm going to go with team A again in the, in uh, this one. All right. So you're going with team A here on this one here. So let me go ahead and put that one up there for you. So we can take a look here at the answer to this question. And I think you'll be interested in who you picked. Cause again, this is a surprising yeah. one. Team A is Wyoming and team B is Wake Forest. Oh, okay. Interesting. All right. You know, Wyoming's a team that's really been under the radar this season. Of course, you know, playing in, in the Mountain West and, uh, you know, not exactly playing in, uh, in uh, you know, East, East Coast-friendly start times. Yeah, that's an uh, interesting one. I, I like Wake Forest. Like I mentioned, I'm, I really want to see them make the tournament. I wish I would have gone with Team B, actually. But, yeah, that's that's going to be an interesting one as well, Wyoming. Uh, they're going to be an interesting case as well because, like you mentioned, that, that strength of schedule isn't really going to get all that much better, you know, playing in that conference. So uh, that'll be that'll be interesting for sure. Yeah, and, and Wake Forest, the thing, the 319 strength of schedule in non-conference, I think that's, again, a thing where they were sort of a year ahead of schedule, so they didn't schedule aggressively thinking they need to secure an at-large bid, and now that, that could be a problem for them. Exactly. I was going to say that that's probably, you know, a team that didn't really think that they had those NCAA tournament aspirations and didn't really have to schedule that great in the non-conference, and now when you're on the bubble, it kind of comes back to bite you a little bit. Yeah, and Wyoming, a big win against Colorado State on Monday, so they are trending in the right direction. Mm-hmm. All right, two more to go here. So now we are going to blind resume number four. Are you enjoying this game? I love it. I love it. I, I want to pick a team B. Hopefully hopefully I'll uh, I'll get a team B in this one. All right, so here is <laughs> question number four. Team A, 13-7 overall, uh, net of 64, uh, strength of schedule, 16th overall, 73rd non-conference, 2-6 and six in quad one. Team B, 16-4 overall, a net of 39, 157th strength of schedule, 159th in non-conference, just one and two against quad one. Right away, I'm thinking that team A is a power conference team and team B is probably a mid-major, just looking at these numbers. Um, I'm going to give team A the advantage again. Uh, the net isn't crazy different. That strength of schedule is, is outrageous. 16 against 157. 
uh, way more quad one opportunities for team one or team A. Uh, so I'm going to take team A with the assumption that it is probably a power conference team. Well, you are correct as a power conference team. This power conference team did lose again since I made this graphic. So I'm going to go <laughs> ahead here and throw up the answer here. You have chosen to take West Virginia, who is now 13 and eight since we did this. And team B is Chattanooga at the SoCon. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, uh, just looking at the those numbers, you could tell it was it was a, a you know a power five against the mid major type school. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can't say I know a whole lot about Chattanooga. Um, they're you know, but that's a team that's gotta gotta stack up as many wins as they can. You know, the net will be favorable. And if you keep winning, you're gonna you know you're gonna keep moving up. Um, so yeah, you know, if if they can uh, you know keep stacking up wins, Chattanooga get to like 22, 23, 23 wins. Um, they've got a legitimate case because. You know, the thing about bubble teams is they're they're inconsistent. They're going to lose games. So if you keep winning games, you know, even if you're in a lower conference, you're going to have a shot at least just because a lot of bubble teams, you know, are going to going to get picked off and uh, and slip off down the road here in, in February. Yeah, and I will say in terms of West Virginia, I want to mention here at them, it's like they're sort of that spot where the league is brutal and they're playing a lot of good games. But at some point, you got to start winning some of those. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's like well, like we mentioned with St. John's, you know, you have all these opportunities. Got to take advantage of them. You know, you got you got to start winning some of them. Um, like we mentioned, was that two and six in quad one, you know, that's, you, you got to pick up some quad one opportunities, uh, when, when they are presented to you. And, and, uh, if you don't, you know, it, it, it really doesn't help. It doesn't help you just playing those quad one games, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And this is the last one. And I did this for, I, I think you're gonna have a lot of fun with this one particularly because the numbers are very close in a lot of areas. So team a 16 and five overall, the net is 46, 96 strength of schedule, 269th in the non-conference one and three in quad one. Team B, 18 and 3, 57 in the net, 121st rank of schedule, 22nd in the non conference, 1 and 3 in quad one. Who are you taking? Wow, yeah. Look at that, uh, the strength of schedule, 121 and then 22 in the non conference. Uh, I like Team B, actually. I, you know, 18 and 3, the nets are comparable. Uh, their strength of schedule is a little bit worse, but I want I would reward them for playing a tough non-conference. The 22nd ranked uh, strength of schedule as opposed to 269, and the quad ones are identical. So uh, I'm going to go with Team B in this one. So you finally got a Team B. I did. <laughs> All right. And now I'm going to tell you what team, team B you ended up picking. I think you'll be, be surprised by this one a little bit. So let's go ahead and throw it up there. You took the Iona Gales as Team B. <laughs> And team Look at that. Wow. What, team, a, what a coincidence that is. Huh? And, and team A is Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah. You know, honestly, looking at this, yeah, that, that boosts the Iona, uh, the Iona at large bit a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Obviously they scheduled really tough in the non-conference for sure. And uh, you know, their strength to schedule in conferences is certainly going to, going to go down, but yeah, I mean, Arkansas has, has not really been all that impressive to me. Um, they haven't looked great. And, Iona, you know, 18 and three, what are they undefeated in the, in the conference? They got to keep stacking up conference wins for sure. And that net will continue to improve. And um, yeah, that, that's an interesting one, actually. I'm, I'm glad that I picked Iona, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very happy about that. Yeah. I'm glad we, I put that in there. I switched the order for a reason. I didn't want to, cause I wanted to lead into the Iona debate here. Cause obviously they are right now 10 and 0 in the Mac. They are 18 and three overall. And the debate has always been like, if they can run the table in the MAC and they can go twenty and zero in the regular season, like, and they afford a loss in the conference tournament and get in as an at large, and I think the longer they go without losing games, and I'd love their schedule ahead. They have their toughest stretch here is the February eleventh at Siena, a game at ESPNU. February thirteenth they host Monmouth, and then February fifteenth, the third game in a row is a makeup game at St. Peter's. 
If they get through that undefeated, I think they have a good chance to run the table in the league. Yeah, it's, it's like you mentioned. I think that their their best case as an at large is to go twenty and zero, maybe nineteen and one. But you got you got to win nineteen or twenty games uh, in the conference, and then go into your conference tournament with like three or four losses. You obviously have that big win against Alabama, like we mentioned. You want Alabama to continue winning. Um, yeah, you know, I think that they they have a case um as we just showed there they they certainly their resume i would say stacks up well because they did schedule really really tough uh in the non-conference you you do wish that they had that opportunity to play that seton hall game i really think that that's gonna you know come back and and not bite them but i think that that's you know gonna gonna be a tough one because that would have been another opportunity against the team seton hall that's you know right on the bubble that's right maybe in that ncaa tournament picture um if they would have been able to get a win in that one it was a big opportunity for them at madison square garden um, that that would have been another win that they could stack on their resume as a really impressive win. Uh, you know, not having that opportunity really stinks. But yeah, if they go if they go like twenty and zero in the conference, or even nineteen and one, and like win a conference tournament game or, or losing the the MAC uh, title game, it, it's they have a real case and they they do uh, have a legitimate shot at an at large, which uh, is is really great for them, uh, of course. But you know that that's the debate every year. I feel like we see is this you know a, a twenty eight win. Uh, you know, low uh, mid-major conference team that lost in their title game versus, you know, a team that has 12 or 13 losses, but plays in the SEC or the big 12. Uh, it's, it's a debate that, you know, really has no answer. It seems like the committee usually favors the the power conference teams, but you know, if, if you just keep winning, if you're Iona, you know, you do more and more and more that they can't keep you out. Uh, if you do happen to, to stumble in the conference tournament. Yeah, it's like this would be sort of like I thought the Arkansas was interesting. And I was looking at Joe Lenardi's bracket in terms of where the Razorbacks are. I'm looking at the field. I mean, Iona right now, I think it's a 12 seed in his East field, taking out Marquette in the first round. That'd be a fun game. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, just in terms of, yeah, if you go 19, 20, uh, 19 and 1, 20 and 0 in your conference, you know, and, and then win the conference tournament, you know, you go into to, to March with, uh, with three or four losses, you know, and 28, 29 wins or something like that. You know, you're going to get a better seed. You're not going to be playing in that, in that, you know, 215 or, you know, a 314 matchup. You're going to get like an 11 12 seed. Not only do you have a winnable first game, but then you have a winnable second game as well. Um, so that's the goal for Iona, I think, would be to, to not only make the tournament, but to, to win a tournament game this season. They've been knocking at the door a couple times. Uh, this is, the, this is their probably their best shot at actually winning a tournament game uh, with Patino, of course. And, uh, you know, the, the better the, the better that they play now in this next month and a half, the better shot that they're going to have to have a more favorable matchup uh, in, in the tournament. Yeah, and Arkansas is rated as a 9C right now by Joe Lenardi, and they have two questionable losses in their resume. They lost to Hofstra on a neutral floor, who Iona did beat earlier this season. They lost to Vanderbilt at home. So those are two that question marks on their resume, but they are in a much safer spot at this point. Yeah, I think that's too saw personally i don't know if they're that they're that safe in the in the tournament but they play in a tough conference like we always say they're gonna they're gonna get a lot of opportunities uh to continue building that resume yeah look at arkansas schedule down the stretch i mean after they play this georgia game i think nine of their final like either final nine games are against tournament teams yeah, or, or bubble teams because they it's mississippi state auburn at alabama they have the Missouri at Missouri trip, which is a nothing burger. Then they have Tennessee at Florida, Kentucky, LSU at Tennessee. Yeah, those are opportunities. <laughs> that, that's all you can ask for if you're on the bubble right now is opportunity, but got to take advantage of them. You know, as a as a St. John's fan, I know when you don't take advantage of opportunity, it doesn't really do much for you at all. So 
uh, definitely got to take advantage of those if you're Arkansas. Yeah, we'll definitely play the blind resume again next time we come on here because I'm sure we'll have yes. more compelling resumes towards the end of February and the March. And I think yes. I want to talk here about some interesting games coming up here on soup on this Saturday, which there's a lot of great games on tap for Saturday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just looking at the schedule here, I mean, you know, staying in the Big East, my favorite conference, my team plays in the Big East. Uh, you know, big game at noon, UConn and Villanova uh, at the Wells Fargo Center in Philly. You know, that's that's a fun matchup, you know, kind of a throwback Big East matchup. Feels like both of those teams uh, have their claim for like, you know, the tops near the top of the Big East. Uh, that's a really fun game. And I'm really looking forward to uh, to seeing UConn and Nova. Of course, we have Baylor and Kansas. Uh, that's going to be a really interesting game as well. Like we mentioned, Kansas, you know, stumbled over the weekend, then kind of finds their footing. Uh, Baylor did the same. They stumbled over the weekend as well. So that's a really fun matchup at the top of the Big 12. So uh, those are my two two big games that I'm picking, at least uh, this weekend. Yeah, I like those games. Well, some other ones to throw out here. USC going to Arizona on Saturday. And we'll find out how good the Trojans actually are here because they've not played many good teams. We'll see how they do here. Duke Carolina, obviously, the rivalry is tremendous. Coach K's last trip to the Dean Dome, and we'll see if North Carolina can get up for this game, not get blown up by 25 points. That would be nice. How about an underrated game at 10 o'clock at night? uh, Gonzaga, BYU, that's always fun. BYU seems like they're always that one team that can kind of give Gonzaga some trouble. Uh, That's like a fun little nightcap. You know, you get uh, 12 hours of of college basketball. That's, That's a fun one at night for sure. Yeah, I'll squeeze one in there between Duke Carolina and Gonzaga, BYU. Kentucky going to Alabama. What church of the Crimson Tide shows up? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's uh that's another fun one as well in the SEC. Uh Kentucky's up to number five now. Yeah, well, we'll see if uh if Alabama can continue this trend of knocking off these top ranked teams. And they're at home. So I would like if I would love to like like that's what I'll be betting the Crimson Tide on Saturday. I feel like there's that's the kind of game they're gonna show up and like either be right in or win. That's the type if, – if we can read the trends on Alabama, that's the type of game that they would probably win. Yeah, absolutely, Troy. Thanks for all the time. really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'll be a follow on social media and keep up with the Seeing Red podcast. Definitely. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Troy Moriello. Last name is M-A-U-R-I-E-L-L-O. Uh, yeah, I do the Seeing Red podcast well, about once a week. We talk about St. John's basketball and the Big East as a whole. Uh, yeah, and so if you're a St. John's fan, if you're a Big East fan, college hoops fan, definitely check it out. All right, Troy, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Definitely, Mike. Have a good one. And with that, I want to wrap up this week's second show. I want to thank my guest, Troy Moriello, doing college basketball. We spent a long time on that. A lot of fun. I also want to thank Phil Frey at the top of the program doing the legal analysis of the Brian Flores lawsuit. If you're stuff like this podcast, including some Olympic storylines to watch, don't forget the Olympics actually start tomorrow, opening ceremony. Check out the blog over justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. Because follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And next up for you guys in this podcast, B is going to be the Sky Guys. We are recapping Season 1, Chapter 6 of the Book of Boba Fett. That's what's going to be out on the feed on the weekend. But if you do not want to wait for that, subscribe to the Sky Guys podcast feed. Same podcast I mentioned at the top of the podcast. You'll get the episodes a day after we record. Excellent access. Make sure you check that out. You want the Sky Guys coverage. Otherwise, it'll be in your feeds here over the weekend. Coming up next week, we're going to get ready for Super Bowl 56. We have a Super Bowl preview on tap with pro football guru Russell Baxter. Do Super Bowl picks and more. Until then, have a good week, everybody. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.